I've never had problems with banks like we have had in the last past five months. And we are at the end of a ginormous bull run, one that the, unlike the world has ever seen. And the money creation through that bull run was staggering. COVID hit and the government pumped $4 trillion in uh, to the economy. And that led to a money surplus like we've never seen. It's important to realize a lot of people compare this to 2008. It's not. We look at things in a broader context of market cycles, meaning that the bank failures are not the event, right? They are a symptom of something that's already going on. Welcome back, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. We're so excited to dive into today's episode. However, we've got some amazing sponsors that we have to shout out before we get started here, and that is Live Oak Bank, Tenant Inc., and Janus International. If you guys are looking to purchase your first storage facility, you just might be looking at the SBA loan approach and one of the best and most efficient places to get your SBA from is going to be Live Oak Bank. These people know self-storage. They've been in the industry for a very long time. They're very knowledgeable. You don't have to educate them on the underwriting, on how you're, you're valuing self-storage, any of that. These guys are incredible and they are a phenomenal solution for you and your financing needs in all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank. Welcome everybody to Self Storage Income. What a week. What it's been wild, man. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Last couple of weeks have been just off the chain a little bit. Yeah. Uh, just when you think you you know can't get any more crazy, there's something just that just does. happens. Uh, I mean, a, a kind of uh, isolated so far uh, black swanish event. Mm -hmm. uh, super interesting times, man. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you know a lot of people are very nervous, which um, you. If you're not, you probably don't understand the implications of these things. So it's not that you shouldn't be nervous, but there is a really big difference in um, being nervous and not being in control. And I think that uh, we are, you know, a lot of the things everybody that that we're seeing, uh, you have to realize these are symptoms to greater trends. And, you know, it's it, it's something we've been talking about on the podcast now for a long time mm -hmm. about how the self-storage industry was changing. And we made YouTube videos on it. I mean, talking about two over the last two years and that they were largely uh, due to external factors that were driving these things. And... Um, I think that as long as if you understand, not that you know what's going to happen. Nobody knows that. We don't time markets. We don't do that. We need to make this very, very clear. Um, we do not time markets. I don't believe that anybody can. Um, and uh, everybody times markets in hindsight, right? But mm -hmm. nobody ever knows the future. The idea is not knowing the future. The idea is understanding the environment and outcomes that those types of environment produces and then being prepared and with that understanding making good decisions mm -hmm. but we don't stop we don't right we don't it's not like our uh you know it's we don't say oh it's bad time to buy so we don't buy 
right? We don't say now's the bottom, we're going to be buying and move up. No, those are isolated individual asset decisions that is taken in the context of a broader market. And I think understanding this is a really important piece and why why we do these the, this podcast and I talk a lot about this is I hope that you know you guys can understand how these this asset and its assets performance um, is dictated and not dictated but uh, is influenced by external factors and it's such a new asset that honestly and it, it, we just don't have a lot of test subjects for it right this asset has never gone through inflation like this it's never happened um it's you know this is an asset that was invented during times where maybe it was high inflation but it wasn't even you're talking about maybe one it, mm -hmm. it was not out in the market so it's something that really came about in the 80s and since then uh we have been on an upward tra trajectory a downward trajectory, right? We've had basically one big shift and that was in 08. That was the first time that we'd had a major uh, end of market uh, credit cycle um, with this asset class that could really, really test it in a broad market sense that we could get actually good data on it that was in all sorts of different environments, small cities, big cities, different types of assets had general consumer adaption so we could look at those trends uh, prior to that um, very isolated not a lot of good information and we couldn't really see it survive so I just think a lot of times with self-storage there's a lack of understanding maybe at the environmental issues that that can drive it now there is nothing though that trumps the micro self-storage mm -hmm. is a micro game and how I look at it is we offset risk by being more focused on the micro. So when uh, the context of the environment, economic environment changed, we dove down deep micro. So we, our thesis and understanding was a year and a half ago, a little more, that the implement, uh, that the government's decision to increase the money supply by 60% or whatever the crazy number was, trillions of dollars, the fastest we'd ever seen, um, was going to lead to activities that would be bubbly in valuations, certain asset classes, and would eventually lead to, um, uh, to higher inflation and interest rates we thought would rise um, because it was overheated and overdone. We didn't know that. But those kind of conditions produce those results. So with that understanding, did we stop buying? No. Did we decide we need to be way more focused though on the micro and the micro that we needed to be focused on was oversupplied because we viewed that a contraction of economic activity would lower demand. So we did not want to be building and opening up in a high growth market. We didn't want to buy at a mm -hmm. high valuation in a high growth market. We looked at fundamentals, the money on the table, we went back to our long, not back to, we just really were a lot more stringent on those types of things. That played out very well for us. The same thing happened prior to 2008. We stopped buying at the time prior to 2008, but that's just because we were too dumb to know what to do instead. So <laughs> we, we stopped buying right before 2008 and we had set up though um, our deals and everything that were all cash basis, low leverage, 
And then after 2008, we started buying again. And when we started buying again, people were like, you're buying in the middle of a real estate collapse. And we're like, yeah, but we were so focused on that micro. Like this deal just makes sense. I mean, but it's gonna lose value. You're probably right. I, I don't know, um, but it makes sense now. Yeah. And will yeah. it make sense in 10 years? Yeah, we're like, it'll make great sense. So offset uh, your stupidity, or you all are really smart. My stupidity offset that <laughs> by, as we call my, my margin of stupidity, right? Yep. On those micro things. So before we get into talking about a lot of this stuff here, we really need to set the stage. We don't time markets. We don't know what's gonna happen. I have no idea in the next three months, right? We have our thoughts, we look at it, we evaluate it, and we go back down to the individual market and the individual facility. And really, if you just understand conditions but cut out the rest of the noise, the talking heads, you should never just listen to somebody that states this is gonna happen or this is gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. It's more of this idea of this is what we're seeing, here are the conditions, and here's what we're doing, right? Um, and we're trying to be transparent with that on this podcast. We're mm -hmm. trying to let people know we're wrong all the time. I'm okay being wrong. I, I mean, we we slowed down buying in 2000. When did when did this happen? I had one year where we didn't buy anything. It was probably 2017. I think it was 2017. 2017, 18, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So you can imagine how stupid that looks in hindsight, right? That I stopped buying in 2017 and by 2022, anything you would have bought in 2017 had tripled in value. What like, was like? What was your reasoning for that at that point in time? Like so what was going through your head? The reasoning for that was twofold. We were getting concerned with oversupplied markets, which that actually turned out to be true. <laughs> so in 2000, if you look back, you can see in 2018, we started to see a dip in occupancy rates. Um, Self-storage had kind of been overdone, uh, but COVID bailed everybody out, right? Um, but Two, it was also the problem that I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't understand the asset, I think quite good enough to understand how to deal with right in 2017, we really started to see a jump in asset value and cap rates dropping. And to be totally honest, it just shook me. Like we couldn't grasp it. We couldn't mm -hmm. understand why is this happening? How is this happening so fast, so much? You're asking, you're asking us to pay for something at $80 a square foot when three years ago, I could have bought that at $30 a square foot, right? <laughs> now, that is an absolute horrible way to invest, everyone. That is totally wrong. That was irrelevant. But for me, it was a shock. It was mm -hmm. a shock to the system. Like, how can you value it that much? And, we'll, and so because of it, though, we had to recalibrate. Mm -hmm. We had well, to understand better why we were buying, where we were buying, and what we were paying for. Right. And I think this is just like touching on that. I think it's a testament to the fact that you aren't timing markets. You're not guessing. You're not, I mean, you didn't understand something and you said, hang on, yeah. like, let me understand this. Let's figure this out. Let's let it play out. Um, instead of just assuming that that value and, or, and those values generally would continue to grow and explode like they did because again you had no idea and yeah, nobody no else idea. did either yeah and, and and that's a good point we don't look at the equity creation so the equity creation rising relying on the market didn't mean anything to us yeah exactly. when other people said oh look they're going up in value we should buy that didn't translate to value to me 
even though it was true. It was translating that the value or the price, the extrinsic value, not the intrinsic value, rose while the intrinsic value didn't. And so now I'm getting less. Mm -hmm. Now, that's flawed in a lot of reasons, but we didn't... and two, at the time, I didn't think we did not think the market was going to crash. We didn't think anything like that. So we didn't stop buying because we thought, oh, yeah, there's, you know, we're going to have a market correction, things like that. We thought markets were oversupplied, but we, we didn't think any broader thing. It, it was our inability to execute micro E in those changing environments. And that's one of the big things. And I guess that maybe that lesson applies to like right now and what we don't do. Mm-hmm. We don't stop in changing environments because we're worried about the future, right? If the deal makes sense, we'll still do it. And during that time, we had to understand better about what made sense and what we were okay with. Meaning that if I wanted a average annual 20% return, I wanted all my money back out in four years, I wanted to take profits, and then I wanted to hold it then basically uh, risk-free, I got all my money and everything out, and that worked at $30 and it still worked at $80. Why does it matter that it went from 30 to 80? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't. Yeah. Because I still get exactly what I'm trying to get. I want to get that outcome, right? right? Now, is it as good? Maybe I didn't make as as much, but that was what I was trying to get. And I would and I would I should have and would have bought all the time for that. So I think that um the problem is is when you get too concerned about those external things and that's what had happened i was too concerned about external rises in value thinking that it meant something uh uh, from a standpoint of it meant that it wasn't as valuable Mm -hmm. classic real estate mistake classic i think people you know we, we see this with you know homes where people were like, oh, homes rose so much in 15 or 16. Well, you know, they're going to go back down. Heard that all the time. The discrepancy, the rise made them think that there was a fundamental problem, even though that didn't translate, right? And so I think in times when we're going to talk about what's going on, when we're talking about what's happening now, what we're seeing, um, the best way you you should work within environments is know that buy box why you're buying understand and know what you're expecting out of that asset and what you are expecting as far as safety and security goes right so get that buy box down and then if you identify those assets and you're confident in those returns micro right the only thing that the macro should really do involved is how it will affect that micro environment meaning that if I know that there is, we're gonna be in tough times, high interest rates, and I'm in a small city where the employer of that city is struggling and can't last very long on high interest rates, and that may very much change the fundamentals of that location, that small area, then obviously you should be concerned. But that still goes back down to the effects micro. I don't think this is a three mile game, but it is definitely a five mile game. <laughs> like, mm, you know, totally. I, I, I mean, your your asset should work within a five mile area and i i think that if you go back down to those things you'll you'll always be okay now what it does mean is i like to say we don't time markets but my money does so what i mean by that is that my buy box i can either reach a return on my money safely or i can't 
and the, lots of times market prices and market fluctuate uh, fluctuations will dictate that during 2010 through 2000 and you know 16 we bought a lot why because our money dictated that those returns were so good we should do it so we bought a ton at the bottom of that trough right and we stopped buying prior just simply because we couldn't get deals that we could get our returns on so we're not timing markets we don't try to we don't do that but lots of times you just kind of see that as a it, for people that are very much um very much focused controlled know what they're doing know what they're buying know what they're and why they're buying um it, it can almost seem like they time markets and you look at that with people like warren buffett right and things he doesn't know what's happening he doesn't know why it's gonna happen he just knows it's the price is x my return is x it doesn't work oh look the price is lower it works right. and the fundamentals <laughs> haven't changed i'm buying so well again that intrinsic extrinsic value yes. scenario just like i mean well said yeah it's just it you focus on that now how let's talk now a little a bigger picture and then we're going to talk about buying today especially for people that are coming in what they should be looking at and, and expecting we have made adjustments we, we we're looking at these things because the conditions obviously have changed so first of all let's just get out of the way of the bank failures okay um we look at things in a broader context of market cycles meaning that the bank failures are not the event right they are a symptom of something that's already going on uh, interest rates uh, are not directly because of inflation, right? Even though they are, but inflation is part of a broader context. And we are at the end of a ginormous bull run, one that the, unlike the world has ever seen. And the money creation through that bull run was staggering. On top of that bull run, COVID hit and the government pumped $4 trillion in uh, to the economy. And that led to a money surplus like we've never seen. It's important to realize a lot of people compare this to 2008. It's not. During 2008, when we had the crisis, first of all, it was a restructuring and it was a equity issue, meaning it was overinflated. It was uh, the debts were, were way too much. The fundamentals were gone and the economy had to restructure. That means debts had to... Um, be erased. We had to uh, get rid of the excess in both money and equity. And during doing that, you erase capital. So if you have a trillion dollars worth of real estate uh, values, and that trillion dollars loses uh, uh, half of it, you have 500 billion now, right, of money that was evaporated out of the economy because debt is money and money is debt. So that there is no, right, they're not separated. So what that meant was in 2008, the stock market, real estate, everything, they had lost so much that we were in deflation. Uh, assets were falling and they were losing value all the time. Everybody thought they were gonna lose more because of this uh, deflationary environment. And it was due to a huge hole of money the money has just disappeared. It was gone. It was out of the cycle. We couldn't, debt products weren't working anymore. The government needed to fill that hole in and stabilize things. And they did that through injecting cash, capital into the market. 
and stop the fall of assets because they devalue money. People get their money out of uh, certain assets. They put them into different assets like stocks, things, and they stop the fall from that by injecting that money. What we saw during COVID was there was no collapse. So you injected the money on top of the end of a bull run where money had been already, was already produced and rolling, right? There had not been a restructuring. So the money was just on top of already what was a hot market. That's why we have inflation, because that money was so much excess that it was more than the economy was made for, could handle, and all of a sudden driving up prices like crazy. I was going to say and the, su the supply demand oh, aspect man. on top of that, when you have the issues with the supply chain. Yes. Um, I mean, it was just like the, the perfect storm, right? And it just completely overheated. Yeah. And now we have to get rid of that money. So as you guys know, we like to partner with people who have been in the self-storage industry for a very long time and people who are not going anywhere, who are going to stay in the self-storage industry. One of those people is Janice International. These guys have been in the self-storage world for a very long time. They're an incredible company with amazing products to help build, to help improve and to help drive value of your self-storage facility. They've got rehabilitation programs like their R3 program. They have a number of technology solutions to help you increase operations and value of your self-storage facility. Be sure to check out the all things self-storage at Janus International. Link is in the show notes. One of the best ways to optimize management and to increase the value of your self-storage facility is through property management. And that means you're going to need really good property management software. That's where Tenant Inc. comes in. These guys have a huge amount of tools at your fingertips that you guys can deploy and put into motion to extract the maximum amount of value and deploy the maximum amount of value at your storage facility. This is Tenant Inc., truly your one-stop shop. Check them out. Link is in the show notes. Now, we have to get rid of that money. So, how do you get rid of money? Well, you rise interest rates because interest rates take care of debt. Debt is money, okay? The bank failures, when you rise interest rates, when you shrink the money supply, bank failures are happening because of those issues. 2008, we had over 500 banks fail. The banks failed because they all together held a like-minded asset that was overdone and then to make problems worse, they all were holding this hot potato. They leveraged that hot potato through insurance products, uh, CDOs, to the massive amounts. So they took a problem that was a huge problem and they made it into a atomic bomb. But all of them had it. They all shared the same flipping asset, right? They all had the debt products on it. They all had the asset on the books. It was universally spread and it was everywhere. There was no you know, there was no one that was not going to get away from that. The bank failures of today are not like that. Rising interest rates caused problems with Silicon Valley Bank in certain products that they held, particularly real estate products that were subject, um, insurance products that were subject to rising interest rates. That caused problems. Now, the bank should have been able to survive that. Okay, Other banks don't hold that problem. They can survive it. They needed to get money. They were very concentrated in the riskiest assets, mainly venture, crypto, and they were very concentrated on who they serviced. 
which were venture capitalists, right? Tech companies in high interest rate environments, when you're shrinking the money supply, they don't do good because risky assets, assets do really, really bad in bad times or tightening times. So all of a sudden, you had the most vulnerable people that were experiencing the economy a lot worse, these tech companies. They're worried about their bank. Everybody went and ran on the money and it decimated the bank overnight. Um, the other bank failures right, that happened were tied to that and also had risky products. The only reason this is important and the only reason we're trying to explain it is why it's different than 2008. Now, it, if what was done was right and wrong, we don't need to argue that or talk about that because we just need to understand how this applies to our thesis, what we're doing, and how we're moving forward. That is not the event, though. The high interest rates that are causing this are there to stop product inflation, which, yes, inflation did take a uh, nudge down, but we are so far away from anything that the government's trying to hit to clear that, I, I mean, honestly, the government's in a really hard spot. You now have asset deflation, product service inflation. You stop asset deflation by injecting money, but you stop product inflation from uh, removing money. So not a good spot. They're working, walking on a very tight uh, rope and we have unemployment like we've never seen. It's, a not, it's not a good position for the government to be in at all. It's mm -hmm. not a good position for all of us to be in, which we were put in this position. Um, but with that said, all right, the unknowns are clear to, to me. We don't know what's gonna happen. It should be clear to everybody. The knowns and understanding what's happening though, but what will happen because of it, we have yet to see. With that said, how are we moving forward? And now what problems are gonna cause for you? First of all, financing issues. Everybody, if you're trying to go out and buy facilities, banks are going to be more nervous about placing capital. They may still love self-storage, but they're going to be way more nervous about who they put it with. They're gonna be skittish about placing capital. We never had so many problems, and I've mentioned this like three times over the last few months, I've never had problems with banks like we have had in the last past five months. It takes twice as long. Mm -hmm. We've had two banks pull out of our deals. I've never had one prior ever do that before. Um, it's just frustrating. And on our construction projects and our development projects that we're doing, they're just that much longer. I mean, we had a project that honestly should have been done in a year and a half between the city and between our financing partners, it was put to three years. And that's frustrating. That's really, really hard. Um, and that carries with it risk that you're gonna go buy, buy a facility, you put money down, you're getting your financing, you do due diligence, your money goes hard, and at the last moment, the bank pulls out. Um, so you need to be aware, once again, of the issues that we, the environment, the issues that it's creating, how it'll affect you. That's a very real problem. Now, there's a few things that you can do and work on. Once again, good relations with banks. Um, you need to have that kind of stuff set up. You need to have it in your contracts when you're negotiating with sellers, contingencies on financing, contingencies on third-party reports. Those are out of your control, and we see issues with those in frothy economies. So you have to be able to not have responsibility if the bank or your third-party reports you don't get out. Now that's gonna happen in your PSA, right? Your purchase and sell agreement with that seller. You need time to figure those things uh, or to figure out 
the overall environment and you need to be prepared. Like you need to have discussions with those banks prior. You need to really understand, you, you gotta have a relationship before you walk into it. That's a big risk. The other risk um, that we see is uh, one that is scarier to me. And that is refinancing. And that is people that are getting new valuations or people that had interest rates that were low that are moving up. The bank is now changing um, its valuations on those properties. And they may be in stabilization mode. They may be uh, going from construction to perm, right? We've had a lot of conversations with developers in the last past two weeks that have been in trouble. And a lot of it um, has to do principally with that issue. It's a financing problem. Banks are pulling back. It was fine when they started, right? Now it's not. If you have to sell or if you have to refinance an asset, those problems um, are just trickier. You need to be ready and be preparing for them. If you go to sell and you're in a fourth tier market thinking that you were going to get this aggressive price because it of and it's going to happen overnight, you may not want those kind of expectations right now, right? We we are seeing a lot of sellers just leave the market, and they're not being as aggressive and willing, obviously, to pay what they would uh, because of the capital changes. So these things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis have real implications of the greater market. So understand them. Understand the, the problem with higher interest rates, how that affects your property, how that affects your customer, how that affects the refinance, the sell, and when that is timing. If you say, oh, it doesn't matter, I don't have to do it till fall. Okay, well, the fact of the matter is we may be dealing with high interest rates for a long time. I don't know when they're gonna end. I, I do know the issues that we're in in this phase are probably not gonna be resolved overnight in fact, they're probably not going to be <laughs> resolved. Um, it, it could take years. This is how it works. These things don't, it's really easy to put money into the economy. That's easy, right? You just send checks out and you just give banks money and you give companies huge amounts of money. It's really hard to get that money out. Um, it takes time and we all feel it. And it's an eroding away and we have all these bubbles that end up bursting that were fueled on cheap interest rates, cheap money that are not sustainable. And what's happening is those interest rates went up, they're all surviving as long as they can, but they can only survive for so long. And then they pop, just like the bank, just like you see with startups or tech companies, right? They're eroding away those cash reserves. They're hoping if the economy will get better, maybe I can refinance, maybe I could do this, but it takes so long for this stuff to go into place, they can only survive for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And you should expect that time to go on longer. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately for them, um, they didn't plan for that. They did plan on those, yeah. on the market, making them on those valuations to continue rising, those cap rates staying low. And um, that's obviously, it's just, it's not the case and you can't, it, it, again, it's just a huge testament to everything that we've built here with what we do, you know, at Cedar Creek and, and um, just the team and what we focus on getting back down to that micro, that microeconomic factor of looking in that five mile radius. Um, and, and that was another thing that I thought of as you were talking about these things that you can do to help prevent failure is essentially, is, is not getting caught up in the macroeconomic, 
just hysteria of, well, this one this one bank in this one area of the country went out, everything's over. Again, all the talking heads, everybody getting all crazy, selling fear, doing all this yeah. stuff. Like, that's one of the big things. That, again, just back to the fundamentals, getting back to micro. And if a good deal is a good deal, it's a it's a good deal. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, again, you're you're not timing markets. You're not looking at. Uh, these and again to a certain degree right obviously we're looking at these different things going on and 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 you might have to adjust a refi schedule or you might have to adjust um, a sell or whatever that is um, due to market conditions and what, what people yeah. are experiencing but that's the execution again, yeah, yeah we we have to work within those environments exactly but it doesn't mean the environments are are taking us over well that's right? why in the, in exactly like what we do that's why you plan for those things yes like you don't plan on a equity event you don't plan on the sell or the refi like that's icing on the cake exactly you know exactly and that that's the i think the big thing is the more uncertain it is the more options you need right like so the more uncertain the future is i i don't want to be stuck in a position where we have to do something and the timing might not be right yeah well just like the people that you said are in trouble right now that we've been talking to it's exactly what they're doing like they're in trouble and they have to do something about it and they are losing Exactly. Yeah. And now everybody on the flip side of this coin, this is this is the best time to be buying. Go time. It's go time. So <laughs> yeah. um, those that can plan, understand, and execute and keep a level head, um, it doesn't mean it's not scary. I remember when we bought our first deal that was a big deal. At the time, it was $3 million, which is funny that that seems like a huge deal to me today but um then it was it it was scary for me we nobody knew if we just got out of it was like 2010 so maybe 11 we're we're on the backs right of the worst real estate crisis in history we're the only buyers there's no other buyer (laughs) right there's no i mean this was it and we purchased it for three million dollars and i was terrified Um, But I said, I know the micro. Everything shows me that this is right. My logically, this makes perfect sense. Emotionally, Mm. after everything we've been through for the last few years, I'm a little sensitive. Um, And that's okay. I can recognize that. And once that, that led me to double and triple check my numbers. And it led me to ask people like CPAs and other people, what am I missing? What am I getting wrong? And they checked. They checked. It all checked out. Was there problems? Of course. But was the thesis wrong? No. It was a good deal. And we bought the deal, right? Um, that deal has made us a ton of money. Um, the point being with that, though, is we you have to figure out a way to both execute during harder times because... I often use everybody the scale example. So when prices um, are up, it's easy to execute. But when executing is hard, prices go down, right? Mm, That's how it works. Capital's not there. Capital's not there. Supply, demand. People can't buy. People can't do it. So um, you got to remember that you need to be able to execute and prepare for that. And it's going to be harder. We, We take three times as long to get deals done that we're doing now. Deals are more complicated. But because they're more complicated, we're getting seller financing all over the place. We're buying facilities that, you know, eight plus million bucks on seller financing. 
amazing deals that we all know risk on. We're putting very little money down. It's locked in forever. It doesn't even have a balloon payment. I mean, these are deals that you couldn't even imagined two years ago in a market that has over a million people in it. This is not small markets, right? Now, that means we've got to negotiate. We've got to work hard with that person. But obviously, it's worth it. We're getting amazing deals. So during these times, to be have a cool head, to have your execution really planned out and understood so you actually can do it, and then to be um, safe. Know what risks there are. Know the downsides. Identify them and compartmentalize them. There's certain downsides that are catastrophic and danger that can kill you. There's other ones that are manageable. They may not be fun. And then there's other ones that are downsides, but they're irrelevant to the larger plan. So you need to take those things and you need to really look at them. Supply, demand issues, right? Those are those are big deals right now. Those are de- Those are problems that you can't overcome through operations. Those to me are things that I walk away from. Those are the red flags. If I can't overcome that, meaning there's nothing that I can do. I don't want to put myself in that position. Um, But for those that can keep that cool head and execute during scary times, uh, your growth explodes. I, I would expect that over the coming next two years, right, we will grow like we've never grown before in our company. Um, I, I'm assuming in fall, it's going to be, we're trying to buy lots of deals right now. Sellers are adjusting, right? There's a big spread between the buy and the ask in the market right now. It's been shrinking since last fall. Um, I expect fall that to a lot more come back together and unite. Um, and that is a lot more game on because then we can really bring sellers to the table. Uh, and I, I, I don't think these conditioners are going away anytime soon. So for us, like I am investing tons of money into my company, not just assets, into my company. Like, you know, fall came around and everybody was like, oh, we're laying people off. We're not growing. We're not doing, I, I hired, we increased my workforce by like 30%. Yeah. We're like, everybody, let's go because we cannot risk not executing. Well, again, it just goes back to that ability to execute in those times, uh, in those hard times. Uh, and again, it, it, hard times, right? It's just yeah. it's all it's relative to people's circumstance, and um, I mean, it's again, it's go time. It's go time right now to, again, really start like hitting the phones, talking to the brokers, building the relationships with owners, operators, building those relationships with the banks, getting financing, getting your your capital partners, whatever that is, yes. lined up to be able to, again, have everything lined up and ready to pull a trigger as soon as you find a deal. I was just telling AJ right before this podcast, there was um, a deal, a broker literally just shot out. It was OM um, because I'm on a bunch of mailing lists and so forth. I looked at it, immediately shot an email back to him within probably a few minutes, and it was like already under contract. Yeah. Um, so there's, and again, I think there's still this level of ability to execute and that discrepancy in price and value and that expectation from sellers that is, that is going to meet. And so I think that might slow down to where we don't see people executing as quickly. But I think too, the other, the other side of that, do you think people with everything being so like headline this time, again, another totally separate um, discrepancy from 2008 was it was just totally like nobody saw it coming right yeah where 
this, I feel like, has been on the front page news for oh, a yeah. long time. 100%. Everybody's been aware yeah. of it. Like, that's kind of another dynamic, too, where, like, do you think there's a lot more people that are liquid and ready to execute? And yes, you think, way more than 2008. I think so, too. Like, generally speaking, if everybody knows that there's a crash, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a crash. Yeah, everybody's yeah. looking, everybody's trying to prevent it. I mean, everybody was so worried about a banking crisis that the first bank that had issues, they fixed in like 24 hours <laughs> yeah, over the freaking over weekend. weekend yeah. <laughs> like Monday came around and everybody's like, yeah, do you remember when that bank failed on Friday night? Like, We're good. It's just like, yeah. it, it was crazy <laughs> to think about how fast. 2008, everybody was the opposite. The gravy train's never going to end. There are no problems in the economy. And then everybody was shocked when everything was gone. Totally different. Today, everybody is saying, there, here's an issue. Here's an issue. We got to be looking at this. Companies are saying, okay, we got to make sure that our expenses, how much do we have on our balance sheet? Where are our cash reserves, right? People are preparing. We're trying to get in a good place. And so then all of a sudden, when these black swans appear, like the bank, it's people jump on it. We're looking at it, right? Now, this is also a pesky problem for the Federal Reserve <laughs> because they want people to be laid off. They want debts to be restructured. <laughs> yeah. They want to, and everybody is like, okay, we're going to go slow. We're going to do this. We don't want to get in trouble. And they're scratching their heads saying, you know, poking their stick at the economy saying, why won't you fail? Like, go down. We need you to go into a recession here, yeah. like in a really good one. Um, they're intentionally trying to make that happen. That's their job, right? They contract the money supply and they increase it. And so um, you're right. People are, are a lot more aware. So when you find people that know good deals, they jump on it. Now, with the flip side of the coin, when you don't have a good deal, people aren't touching it. So the mm -hmm. extremes in the yeah. economy are big. Like if you have a good deal that is clearly undervalued, you're going to have people are going to jump on it and want it. If you have a good deal that may even be valued appropriately, people are like, "Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. You're at the top of the market. You're a great deal. Good cap rate. We can cash flow good. You're just seeing people because they look at it and say, "I'm readjusting my future expectations." Uh both on occupancy and rent growth. So, um people are like you said, they're looking and they're they're aware of what's going on. They're trying to get prepared. Very different than in 2008. So you need to be doing the same and you need to do what others won't. This is the best time for people starting out ever. Two years ago, if you were starting out and you're competing with everybody else that has easy banking solutions, lots of partners, lots of private equity, you are just in that run up till there's no returns, prices mm -hmm. are soaring. Insane values. Insane yeah. values. You're starting out, you can't underwrite very well. So the basics matter even more. So you can't sharpen your pencil like they can to get deals done. All of a sudden, you just can't get deals. Yeah, you can't bleed as long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now all of a sudden, deals you can make work. Um, and you can get things that maybe you weren't bankable. You can get seller financing now, right? There's all of these things that play into it. Now, what is bad? Once again, it just takes more time. It's harder to get it done. When you're starting out, that's an advantage. Work harder, call more people, negotiate longer, work with those sellers, build those relationships. It'll pay off in ways that it couldn't have just a mm. few years ago. And that honestly to me is everyone that has been interested in this asset class for so long, but they felt that they couldn't move, they couldn't understand things, right? 
unfortunately, the vast majority of them will now pull away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right when they should be going. Dude, touching on the relationship aspect, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately too, is like those funnels that, you know, a lot of us build for deal flow or, or you know, raising capital, whatever that is. Um, focusing on those existing relationships, in addition to like getting the new people in the funnels, great, but really double down on those existing relationships to where yes. you can, because I can't tell you as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about all the deals that I've seen and that I hear about, you know, in our network of people that the deal goes under contract with somebody else or the seller decides not to sell or whatever. And then 30, 60 days later, it's back on the market again, or you're getting a call like, hey, yeah, this, you know, this guy fell out or this didn't happen. You know, do you want it kind of a deal? Um, so just double down, double down on those co- those contacts and those relationships and networks that you currently have, put a ton of effort into it and uh, and just continue to solidify those because it just, it, it pays off every time. 100%. Um, guys, before we wrap up here, I want to also mention, because we don't know what's gonna happen in the future, please be careful, okay? I don't know how bad it's going to get. We have no clue. I don't want somebody to say, you told me to go out and buy and I bought and the market got worse. (laughs) I think the market is getting worse and I think it will. So there, please preface that and understand that. I think what you're saying, AJ, is is buy good deals. Please buy good deals. Don't leverage yourself. (laughs) Look at the three mile radius. Make sure the fundamentals are there. I don't want somebody to message me. He's like, you told me to go buy a deal and got worse. First of all, it's probably going to. And so that's okay. Just understand it. And then go out and get great deals that are deals that in 10 years, you're going to be like, I'm so glad I made that move. I This was the best decision I ever made. I have income and I've created wealth for me and my family. And in that 10-year period of time, you know, you can operate in it you can survive the ups and downs because guess what else everyone this isn't the last time this is going to happen so we're going to struggle we'll hit recessions like this is just normal economic activity everyone we may have not seen it in this particular fashion but still just normal economic ups and downs I love it, man. Such a great way to wrap up. If you guys haven't already, please leave us a review. Check out our YouTube channel. Get at us on social media. Love connecting with all you guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.